Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Taylor Owen, the Beaverbrook Chair in Media, Ethics, and Communications, the Founding Director of the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy, and an Associate Professor in the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. In these different roles, he's emerged as one of the country's most thoughtful and nuanced voices on the internet, media, and public policy. I'm grateful to speak with him as Parliament passes Bill C-18, the Online News Act, to get his perspective on the legislation, as well as broader policy trends with respect to the internet, social media, and how we access and consume information. Taylor, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start at the beginning, if that's okay. Governments around the world, including in Canada, took a hands-off approach with the internet in the 1990s. What was the rationale then for a laissez-faire approach, and what were its benefits and costs in your mind? I mean, it's a nice way of starting, I think, because any policy conversation now, I think, is contextualized by that largely laissez-faire two decades almost, really. I think there are a few things at play. One, these companies that were building the initial platforms of the internet were tremendous economic drivers, for one. I mean, these were this was the new digital economy, and who could say no to that? I think they were seen as enabling democratic values initially. So who could be against that? More speech, more civic engagement, more activism, more challenging of liberal regimes globally, like all democratic goods. And they were intrinsically tied to the, both export and domestic growth of those democratic goods. And I think political actors and parties saw the intrinsic value of them almost before anybody else. This was a new forum through which to mobilize citizens, to recruit voters, to speak to people, to raise money. So all three of those things, big economic growth aligned with democratic values, political instrumentalization by the parties that might eventually be asked to regulate, led to a period where we just kind of let it roll and see what would happen. And a lot of amazing things happened. I mean, that's the the core story of the internet is positive, overwhelmingly positive. But over time, we've also seen some of the downside risks and the harms that have been enabled by the very design and incentives of those technologies. And that's when traditionally we expect governments to engage, when something doesn't have to be universally good for us to regulate it or universally bad for us to regulate it. 
we can accept all the positives of something while also as a society trying to do things to mitigate the the harms. And I think that's where we are now, where the political wind has shifted, the societal acknowledgement of the harms is now solidified. I, I don't think there's any, there's not a lot of debate anymore about some of these harms. And now we're in a question of what you do about it. And so it's this it's a it's a flurry of policymaking around the world about how do you address something as big and complicated that touches on so many aspects of our economy and our lives as the internet. Um, it, it's a it's a pretty wicked policy problem, but we're in the weeds of it right now. Yeah, let's take that up, Taylor, because as you say, we've now had successive pieces of Canadian legislation that effectively revisit that initial approach, including C11, which extends Canadian content rules yeah. to online streaming platforms. And C18, which sets out a framework for Facebook and Google to compensate publishers for their content. We're also still waiting on an online harms bill that deals with issues like child sexual exploitation, terrorism, hate speech, and so on. What has changed in your mind? What is the impetus behind these policies? And how do they broadly compare with policy steps occurring in other jurisdictions? The first observation is that we have been late to this policy game. Canada has been a laggard in this policy conversation. Europe has moved much more quickly. Most Scandinavian countries have moved much more quickly. The UK has. States in the United States have moved faster across most of these those topics you mentioned. So that's one thing. We're late to the game. However, that brings with it, in my view, an opportunity, which is to learn from the mistakes and successes of other jurisdictions. This is a very unique policy domain in that it's never been tried before. Mm. And while you have global platforms, whether they're Chinese platforms or American platforms, and we can talk about some of the differences between them, which are, are dramatic, most of the policies we can enact to deal with what we perceive as some of the harms are domestic. So everybody sees similar problems, but everyone's going to have slightly different solutions based on their own democratic systems, jurisprudence, whatever, economies, right? The, any number of reasons, which actually creates the perfect Petri dish for policy experimentation. Because we can look at all these different jurisdictions who've tried similar things and say, okay, well, some things worked and some didn't. And let's build on that and try and make our policies kind of the best in class at that moment that then other countries can then learn from. So in an ideal world, that's where we'd be. So that's Thing one, and I can come back to why I think we're not in an ideal world in a minute. The second is that when we look at policies for the internet or internet intermediaries, platforms, which is really what we're talking about with a lot of these policies at the moment, I think we'll be talking about something else in the future. But right now, the, when we're talking about regulating the internet, we're largely talking about what do you do about the big intermediaries that filter the internet for us and determine our digital experiences in large part. They are such large actors. I mean, there's some. these are some of them. We talk about Google, Facebook, Amazon. These are some of the biggest global companies in history that touch on virtually every aspect of our lives. That There is not a policy for these companies. And I find it very helpful to think of economic or competition policies as sort of one bucket? Like, are they acting in anti-competitive ways? Are there anti-monopoly issues in play? Are there 
consumer protection issues involved, right? Like as one bucket. A second, which is how do they deal with data? So they are all fueled by data and capitalize on data as their primary economic model, which has all sorts of other issues involved with it. And there's a set of data privacy laws that I think are and regulations that are coming into play. And a third bucket that is content. So how do we deal with, as you said, the child exploitation issue, non-consensual sharing of infant images, hate speech, defamation, fraud, like a whole host of outputs of the system that we want to minimize as democratic societies. And those are three very different policy regimes and approaches and models. And different countries are doing different connection pieces of them. So when I step back, come to back to your question finally, and look at the Canadian ecosystem of po- digital policy at the moment, I'd ask two things. One, to my first point, is it learning from what other countries have done and is it better? Is it taking the right lessons? And two, is it recognizing that you have to take this sort of comprehensive approach to digital governance and do things in all three of those categories simultaneously? which as you know better than most people is incredibly difficult for governments to do like a policy by one department is hard enough three new policy regimes in three different topical areas that require coordination across government simultaneously in an area they've never regulated before is incredibly complicated and difficult and and so those are the two questions i would ask and i i think on the first one on like we can get into some of the pieces but I think on the first, we are taking some good lessons in some of these policies, and some were not. And on the comprehensive, I actually think part of why this is so challenging at the moment is because they actually are finally doing things across those three domains. And it's pretty tough to do it all at once, but we can get into that. We will indeed get into some of those questions. I think that's a really useful framework for our conversation. But before we get into them, Taylor, let's deal with some high-level issues that may help to situate our conversation, if that's okay. How should we think about big tech companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter? Are they advertising companies or publishers or social networking sites? And how does your answer to that question, or anyone's for that matter, influence how we think about the right public policy response? It influences it tremendously. And the answer, I'm afraid, is that they are many things all at once. They may have started as Facebook might have started as a social media company. Amazon might have started as a book selling company. Google might have started as a search engine. And if they had stayed those things, I don't think we'd be having this conversation right now, for one. And two, they'd be fairly easy to regulate. We'd know how to do it. The challenge is that because of just the unbelievable power of the platforms they built and the buy-in of society to the products that they built and the economic, the, the historic, unprecedented margins they were able to build from the commoditization of the data they were collecting, they are now many, many things, each of them. Amazon is a healthcare delivery company. It is a marketplace for any kind of good and service. It is increasingly a financial services organization. Google is seven different companies doing, touching so many aspects of our lives, our societies, our our human autonomy, our 
transportation system. So one response to that from a regulatory standpoint is to throw up our hands and say, this is ungovernable. How do we possibly govern something as complex and multifaceted as this, which to me is, as I'm sure you would appreciate as someone who cares about public policy, is is not the approach I would want to take here. The other is to say, okay, in what what does this platform do? And how do we, how does that, how does some of what it does intersect with our existing policies and responsibilities that we've given to our democratic states? Or how, what should be if that policy doesn't exist? And that's, I think, where we are, right? Like if, if Facebook tried to relaunch a digital currency, which it thought about doing in Canada, Nobody would ever say that should not be regulated by our financial regulations. Like that just doesn't make sense. If Amazon were to enter into our healthcare system in a big way, no one's saying that the Canada Health Act wouldn't apply to them. Right? We can we can come at this in multiple ways and from multiple directions because they do so many things and we have to. Sometimes it seems like a lot of the concerns that people have with big tech is fundamentally about the perception of their market concentration. You know, that is to say, yeah. their issues with these companies and even the possible role for policy intervention may diminish if these companies weren't so dominant in the marketplace. If that's the case, then why isn't the chief solution here about competition policy? What are the obstacles or drawbacks to thinking about these questions through an antitrust lens? So anti I would say an antitrust lens is a subset of broader competition policy. So I think the bigger question is, how do we think of competition policy broadly, including mergers and acquisitions, the control of user data and information, the all the things, and potentially antitrust? How does that relate to these? Now, I feel similarly to this as I do to data policy and competition policy, which is they may address some of the challenges that we see, or some of the potential risks and harms of the economic activity of these platforms, but they are not sufficient solutions. So you will see people who are very dogmatic on the on the free market side, and and it won't surprise anybody to learn that the area where the U.S. is most out front of other countries is the competition policy domain. Because if you put so much stake as a society in the efficiency of markets, you care a lot about market fairness, <laughs> or you should. And so we have various competition authorities in the US really out front in many ways in potentially breaking off some of this, these companies into smaller pieces and, and limiting acquisitions and so on and so forth. Now, I don't think it's sufficient because many of the problems we see with these platforms do not get solved through competition. So it might help the, pro and I think actually it's almost, I, would, I don't think we should try it because we might then see how far the market can actually go in providing some of these goods, these democratic goods, or minimizing these risks. But I am, I am, perhaps less confident than others, perhaps you in particular, of what that will end up with, right? I, 
market competition in some ways can race to the bottom on this stuff too, if not paired with certain safety nets in the form of data privacy laws, regulations around content, which I think will apply to small and large players alike, no matter how much competition there is. I should just say in parentheses, I've even heard the argument somewhat compelling that the risk of breaking these companies up without some of these other broader policy interventions is that it leads to the growing dominance of Chinese firms in some of these areas. So in other words, you're you risk trading off the kind of devil you know for the devil you, you don't if you think about it narrowly through a, a kind of competition policy lens. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that gets us into a much, I think, wider geopolitical conversation that's often made with U.S. tech companies, right? And the, the CEOs are very quick to make the argument that wouldn't you rather us, an unhindered us versus an unhindered hindered Chinese platform ecosystem. To me, that's a bit of a false trade-off. I mean, I, I, I don't think that rationalizes not making our own, not democratically governing our own companies. I think you can probably do both at the same time, but that, that's a bigger strategic question. <laughs> Indeed. I, I want to shift the conversation a, a bit to how you think about our current media landscape. Is there a market failure requiring policy intervention? And if so, how do you think about that market failure? Is it a broad issue like sector wide or a more targeted one in, in certain markets, for instance? What, in other words, is the public policy problem or problems that needs to be solved in the area of the news media? Okay, so you adding news media there clarified that a bit because I, I actually have, would think think differently about the media writ large versus journal the industry of journalism, the current industrial production of journalism or market production of journalism. So in the media industry writ large, I think we can, if we take C11 and, and C18, C11 looks at sort of the broader media production space in Canada and up, seeks to update our regulatory and protect, largely protectionist in many ways model that we've previously had in that sector to the internet. If one believes that that kind of protection is still warranted, then I think it probably makes sense to try and do that. I have my doubts that it's needed. I'm actually not sure the current ecosystem needs that kind of protection in the same way it did in the 70s and 80s and 90s. I think it looks very different, and I would probably go about that quite differently. On C11, I'm, 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 I'm not, I don't think, I think a lot of the rhetoric around it has been overwrought. I don't think it's a censorship regime. I think if you're looking at, I think it's, I think discoverability is not censorship. And in fact, that trivializes the very real issue of internet censorship and regulations that overstep on content, which we will get to when we get to content, because some have, and we need to protect against, I think, very cautiously. And I've been working very hard to ensure that any guidance I give on this is like very clear on that, that you can overstep on content policy and get into a trouble with government overreach on content. But that is not what C11 is. Now, I think you can argue against it because you don't like cultural protectionism. Go yeah, I'm so, sorry, if I could just interrupt you there, because I, obviously I put a much broader question to you, but just to intervene for one moment on your observation yeah. with C11, I think you're precisely right. I regret, in fact, the way that the policy debate around C11 has unfolded, because it seems to me the crux of the issue is as follows. 
we we have a CanCon regime, which at present is asymmetrically applied to traditional broadcasters, and it's not extended to online streaming platforms. That yes. asymmetry is inherently unfair. And the question, it seems to me, is how do you solve for it? Do you solve for it by extending the treatment to the online platforms? Or do you solve for it by reconceptualizing the policy with respect to traditional broadcasters? Kind of full stop. It's a it's a technocratic Agreed. question is more than it is a a kind of fundamentally normative one. And yet it, it the policy conversation has evolved, you know, because I think of of opportunism on both sides of the debate to obscure what is, yeah, as I say, I, I think fundamentally a kind of technocratic policy conversation. Sorry, I didn't mean to inter- intervene, but I, 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 no, I just I, wanted I, to I, emphasize look, I'm glad your you point. Did because I, I didn't want to go too in the weeds of C-11, but like, I completely agree with you. I, I think, and I think that is actually a very interesting conversation. Do we think that we should be supporting Canadian cultural production broadly defined in its, in the current media market and ecosystem globally and how and how would we best do that now i think what we also need to acknowledge is that there's a history of cancon that involves language issues and regional diversity and all sorts of things that are slightly complicated i think than just a pure like does this need market is this a free market supported industry or not i think it's a there's there's some nuance there but yeah i think the that is an easy debate and one that should be had, it has been torqued into something that it really isn't, in my view. So that's unfortunate, but is what it is. On the news media, so I think there's two questions one needs to ask to begin as first principles. Do we think the free market is currently supporting it? And do we think it can? And you can say, we don't think it's currently supporting it, but we do think that certain policies could help it provide that function? Or do we think there's been a more fundamental market failure that requires slightly more systemic state intervention, for lack of a better term, or governance? And I think we have to start with that conversation because if you tell me or someone tells me that the market does already provide that, then I don't think we need to have the next policy conversation. If the market could solve this, we should let it do so. My view is we're somewhere in between second, the second and third. The market has clearly is clearly failing in some respects to provide all of the journalistic goods we might want in a democratic society. And the policies have been insufficient to fully reconcile that. And I am less certain that we should be looking only at market solutions, even if supported by public policy, to solve this collective problem of creating the democratic good of, of journalism. I think we need to look at non-market options for that too. But those two things can happen at the same time. So like, I actually think there's a rich policy debate because we probably need both. We need policies that better support and incentivize the market and we need public infrastructure, media infrastructure conversations that aren't market solutions at all, because this good is so important to a democratic society. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. 
wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts so if you're enjoying them please listen to these episodes with pathways give us your feedback we'd love your input but also share them with friends and family that would be greatly appreciated with that advertisement over let's go back to our regular programming even before bill c18 facebook and google started to sign agreements with certain publishers ostensibly to compensate them for their content. I've wondered if they did these deals in the hope that it would deter governments from pursuing a more universal framework. Yet, of course, as you wrote for The Hub in November 2022, in some ways, these agreements became a key rationale for Bill C-18 itself. As you put it then, quote, these existing deals also demonstrate that the platforms are willing and able to place value on the journalism that is shared on their platforms in a way that do not simply monetize links in doing so, have themselves proved that this will, quote, not break the internet. I understand why some publishers who already have deals would rather stick to the devil they know, but the interests of public policy should be able to make these deals more equitably distributed and accountable to the Canadian public, unquote. Taylor, what was the rationale for these deals, and what's the rationale for not extending the same treatment to other publishers? I don't think I know the rationale for those deals. You're right, they predate the Australian News Media Bargaining Code, which many say there is an argument out there that, look, this was just them trying to buy off publishers in other markets so that they wouldn't support and lobby for similar regulations. Right, But they predate them, and the rhetoric around platforms supporting journalism in various ways it precedes the News Media Bargaining Code by years and years and years. The, Google and Facebook in particular have been talking about ways in which they can integrate journalism in their platforms and support journalism through various funds and support initiatives and subsidies and free advertising and any number of sort of ways in which they've, in, in part because they see value in journalism. And I think we can't lose sight of that. We can come back to that. I do think journalism provides value to these platforms. And when they say otherwise, I believe they're being deeply disingenuous at the moment. So, so that's one scenario. Another scenario is that they just believe that if you're in the if you're in the business of providing reliable information to your customers or or information about the world journalism is a big part of that and you should support it i think there's a there was a lot of good intention behind the support projects that these platforms were giving to journalism i think they also recognized that for better or worse they figured out a way much more efficient business model for digital advertising. And they saw what that did to the journalism industry. Now, we don't need to place blame to see causality. <laughs> it, it happened. A third of journalism was largely supported by advertising, and that almost entirely went away. And that, 
Another third was through classifieds, and that had already gone away when Craigslist and those things came on. So now you're left with one third of the pie for journalism support, which is subscriptions, and you get what you get. So I think there was a recognition on the platform side that they owed something to this industry. It was important to their users. It's valuable to democracy. They saw themselves broadly as being good democratic citizens, and they're going to throw some support to this industry. However, as I said in that piece, which I, I do believe very strongly, is that the status quo where hundreds of millions of dollars are flowing from two private companies to some journalistic actors via contracts that are hidden by, behind NDAs is not a tenable situation. As a citizen, I would like to know something more about the money that's going from one single core, two corporate actors to support through huge grants. I mean, this is a ton. Of, New York Times just got $100 million from Google. $100 million. I think we should know the terms of that deal as a citizen, as a reader of the New York Times, I'd like to know that. And I'm not sure why the New York Times should get it and a whole host of other organizations shouldn't on broadly similar terms. I can see why the New York Times doesn't want that. But I think as a citizen, we should want it. And that's where policy can come into play in some degree. I asked about the inherent public policy problem earlier. The PBO, the, that is the Parliamentary Budget Office, has said that most of the compensation under Bill C-18 will be dedicated to large news media organizations like CTV or CBC. Yeah. How does that advance the goal of addressing the market failure that we talked about earlier? So uh, you included CTV and CBC, which are interesting examples at the moment. I mean, I think there's a legitimate debate about whether the public broadcaster should be in incorporated in C-18. My view is they probably shouldn't. The argument for them being included is that they function largely in the in the private market with their ad sales and all that. I don't think they should. So I think you solve that problem not by bringing them into the C18 regime, but by pulling them out of the advertising regime. They're a public broadcast. They're publicly funded. I think they should do good things with their public funding. And end of story. They shouldn't be competing in the private sector in the same in the way they do, which would mean they wouldn't be included in this kind of regime. CTV. I think, shows us some of the flaws in how P that PBO report has been interpreted. CTV has just fired 1,300 people yesterday. They will now be getting a prorated via 1,300 roughly FTE amount of the overall, whatever ends up coming out of the C18 allocations. The point I'm trying to make is the large broadcaster players, whether it's the private sector or broadcaster, or the, the newspapers or broadcasters, were receiving a large, the largest amount in that PBO assessment because they do the most journalism. They have the most journalists. So if I'm a small independent and I have two people, I am going to get a... pro. I will probably get a higher rate per individual, frankly, than the bigger players but I'm going to get a tiny fraction of what the big players who have hundreds of journalists have. So I don't see why that was a surprise to anybody. You could say, should broadcasters at all be included? Broadcasters are only included if they do online news. So if we care about the good of online news, I'm, I think you have to make a case why they should be excluded. And that's the point on which we should debate, not whether they should be included. If our baseline is 
who is doing online journalism and publishing it online and competing in the online ad market, then that's our starting point. And if you want to exclude people, I think you have to make a case for why CTV's website that does journalism should be excluded. And I think there's good arguments for why they should be, but that's the term on which we have to have that conversation about CTV. But yeah, I, I, I think the interpretation of that PBO report was, was frankly off base in a lot of respects. It does, however, Taylor, raise a, a kind of broader potential fault line in this debate. A lot of the lobbying for C18 has been driven by large legacy media players, but the voices of smaller, more innovative upstarts at times have been diminished or excluded. I should say I'm not defending Facebook or Google. We certainly have our issues with them at the hub. But they have helped us to grow an audience that would be seriously constrained if they ultimately limited the sharing of news content as Facebook has threatened. Is there a way for policy to balance the interests of legacy and alternative media? Or is there even a a trade-off there in your mind? I'm not sure the trade-off is as stark as it's been made, frankly. I think one of the main instigators of of amplifying that trade-off has been Google itself in a lot of their public engagement around this, which we can get into, but I, in many ways, fine, problematic. So I don't see how smaller publishers are disproportionately affected by C18. I think there are problems with the model of C18, and I have concerns with it. And I don't think it's a sustainable solution for journalism. It's a big piece of a much broader puzzle. But it discriminating against small publishers is not a concern I have. In fact, if anything, the collective bargaining provision in it will enable small publishers to band together and have the power of the bigger Canadian publishers. There's a reason the Globe and Mail has the biggest deal in Canada, because it's the biggest organization with the most power and the most weight, and this evens that bargaining potential. And in fact, in a way that I bet will get better terms than the bigger players, just because of the scale and the size. There is a question of where do you draw the line of how small and how independent and how journalistic. And that is a very reasonable point of debate that all journalism policy faces. And I think requires some nuance in the conversation about C18. So we have another policy, the journalism labor tax credit, right, which gives percentage of labor tax credit to qualified journalism organizations. That goes through a process of evaluation through can- by Cabinet Revenue to evaluate whether one is journalistic or not. And it is a somewhat fraught process that it, at the end of the day, excludes some organizations by criteria that we can debate. The government could have applied that to C18 that that was the the line they were going to use for inclusion in this regime. But they didn't, in part because of the, the, the voices of small independents who didn't hit that threshold, local newspapers in small communities that maybe only had one or two people and didn't meet the threshold, and the advocacy of Google, who was saying, this has to be much wider open, right? This has to include all these digital organizations. So, okay. So now the bar, as you know, is one FTE and one proprietor. So two people 
and the editorial standards line has been is lower than the qualified journalism organization standard for the CRA for the Canada Labor Tax Credit. So it's way more. Ex- but I'm saying all this not to be sort of pedantic, but to say like if we're talking about funding journalism, you have to draw that line, and you have to be very specific about what you mean by that line and who it includes versus who it excludes and who decides. And I think C18 broadened that out considerably. It's now ironically being that broad nature is being now being used by the platforms to say, look, this is going to make us fund all sorts of disinformation outlets and propaganda outlets. So you can't kind of have it both ways. But I think you have to draw that line and have that conversation about where we think is appropriate and where it isn't. I I don't think it's crazy where it's ended up on C18. I think we're going to I think there's very few organizations that self-identify as being journalistic. They're going to see themselves as excluded from it. But some of that is an implementation, and we have to sort of ensure that that's the case through implementation. But but no, excluding small publishers is, I, I think, a bit of a straw man on this. Your previous article for The Hub expressed the hope, or the expectation maybe, that the arrangements envisioned under Bill C-18 may not be permanent. It, it prompts the question, Taylor, what do you think the future of journalism might look like? How can the legislation serve as a bridge to a different business model or some other regime that supports the, the market? I mean, I think that's the conversation we need to be having somewhat urgently in this country, as other countries are having as well. The reasons I don't like this as a sustainable model is that we are heading to a situation where potentially 50% of the costs of journalism by many organizations are covered by either a labor tax credit from the government or a content deal by the platforms. And in no universe is a journalism sector funded by two of the main actors in society it should be holding accountable a desirable long-term outcome. Now, it may be necessary in order to keep the model alive for a certain degree of time. But I do think we have to be having much more foundational conversations about how we imagine journalism being produced and funded going forward. And that will include, and I think will rapidly include, conversations about what are the current distribution model platforms in the world and what will, will, will they be? How is something like generative AI going to displace even further the business model of news. It could in many, I mean, we can talk about that, but there's many ways in which it could almost overnight do so should some of the platforms deploy it in the way they could already, let alone how it will be possible in five years. And perhaps even at a more base level, what kind of information, collective information do we think we need as a society to be a responsible responsible democracy and be responsible democratic citizens? And are we getting that right now? And look, I, we, we run a big project where we, the Media Ecosystem Observatory, where we study the media ecosystem in Canada and who consumes what and how that affects how they behave and what they believe and who they support politically and so on and so forth. And I tell you, like, every trend line is bad. We are heading to a place where we do not agree increasingly on the same things. We are increasingly not just polarized, but we increasingly dislike people who believe other things. 
we, I mean, there are some really worrying trends. And that is not unrelated from the question of reliable information in a democratic society and who provides it and and how economically we build a system that can sustain it. I mean, it's, I don't have an easy solution because I think it's one of the core challenges we face as a democratic society. And we're not alone. Other countries are going through this too. But I worry greatly about what happens if we don't figure it out. You mentioned the potential magnitude of direct and and indirect subsidies for the, the journalism industry. What would you say to the argument that one of the risks is that it impedes the process of creative destruction and effectively locks in what are, for all intents and purposes, failed business models. Yeah, I think it's a a legitimate concern that needs to be guarded against carefully. If it was exclusionary to new business models and new forms of innovative companies, then I would be more concerned about that. I, I don't think C18 is. I actually don't think the labor tax credit is either. I mean... If I'm starting a new business, I'm equal, and it does journalism, I can apply for that. And so I, I, I don't, if those were both excluding digitally native startups, I would be more concerned about them. I, I don't think either do. No, we can have that conversation, but I'm just not sure that's the case. The second relevant variable here is are we okay with a system of creative destruction in an industry such as journalism? And I think that's a fair question to ask. Like, do we want to leave the production of reliable information in a democratic society to the whims of the market at this moment? And I think people can agree to disagree on that one. I don't think we should. I think journalism is different than some other media production sectors. I don't think, as much as I love the Canadian film industry, if it goes, if creative destruction leads to a decline in the Canadian film, like, I, I'm... I assume I, I think that's an issue as an industry and a sector being harmed. I don't think that's a threat to our democratic society. I think you can make a case that decline of journalism and the production of reliable information broadly defined, produced by many in a diverse way, is a core function of a democratic society. I'd like to make that case anyway. And if you do believe that, then the idea of just pure creative destruction with no market intervention is a problem. The last thing on this is that if one argues for a pure free market approach to this, then one has to probably get rid of all regulatory constraints of the media sector and the journalism sector writ large, including protectionist measures on foreign newspaper ownership, the public broadcaster, a whole host of different things. And so... If one wants to make that argument, you have to be really, I think, clear about what you mean by it. Like, let's take out all guardrails and let it rip. And if you think that, like, I, I'd like to have that conversation. But that's not like, should we or not we should we or not do the labor tax subsidy? That's one piece of a much bigger conversation, I think. I, I agree. I would just say in parentheses, I suspect it's something of a spectrum. In the end, the, the the risk of saying no creative destruction, of course, is that it creates a kind of arbitrage opportunity for investors who, who really aren't committed to the goal of journalism and information, but they see um, a means to get a return on investment because it's the government is essentially saying we're prepared to, to backstop, right? Absolutely. 
And I think that's a, that's a legitimate concern. And the, you have to then look at like what the ownership structures of some of these big organizations are and what sort of other ways are they subsidized and protected through our regulatory regimes. And like, so like you have to open those questions up, I think. And sometimes they're uncomfortable. There's no question. But I think like to, to the spirit of your question, I think a lot more could and should be done to support innovation in the journalism sector. I mean, full stop. I think these policies are part of it, but I think we could be doing a lot more to support the digitally native organizations that are clearly going to be the future of this industry. And I think there's a lot of ideas out there on what to do and it could be added of. I don't think they're mutually exclusive from what we're already doing. So I would hope we do a lot more of them. Let's wrap up by looking ahead. Where do things go from here? Can you walk us through how you envision Bill C-18, assuming it's it's passed, ultimately plays out? Uh, God, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I think it likely will pass. I think it will likely pass in, and this is irrelevant to where, what happens, I think it will likely pass in six to eight countries around the world in the next year to 18 months. Hmm. This is not a Canadian, a radical Canadian idea. This is something being actively tabled and proposed by jurisdictions around the world including California, which is likely to pass a similar version in the next few months. The UK, which has just tabled a similar piece of legislation. Brazil, which is about to pass something similar. South Africa is considering it. So that is relevant to where this goes, because part of where it goes will depend on how the platforms react. Facebook is saying they will block access to news. Now, I think they, in reality, have been decreasing the role that news information plays in their ecosystem for some time. So this is this is not sort of a in reaction to this bill issue. This is part of a longer trend. And I think we need to ask ourselves, are they willing to block news in are they technically capable and willing to block news in Canada? I think the answer to both is probably yes. There's not that many news organizations. They could create an index of them all and block them. And maybe it's worth the risk to do it in Canada to show other countries the fate they might have. Now, as a side note, as a parenthesis, you say, I don't think we should be making public policy overemphasizing those kinds of threats. I think we should take them seriously, but I don't think that should be the core driver of our policy, our democratic policymaking process. We don't do that in any other sector. I don't think we should here either. The bigger question I would ask which refers to, to come back to what your your broader question of where this goes. I can't imagine a world in which Facebook blocks news in eight to ten countries, including California, as a market the size of Canada, in which this country these countries companies based. What does that look like? I mean, realistically, like, do you create a list of tens of thousands of news organizations? And they're just blanket blocked from being seen on what is ostensibly an open platform. Like that just doesn't, maybe that's worth it to them. I have my doubts that that's how this is going to play out. I think we can see the efforts to block in Canada and California or threaten to block as, as part of a larger warning sign to other democratic governments who are actively trying to pass similar legislation. So that's one piece. The second is, is there a world in which Google and Facebook largely abide by these pieces of legislation. And I think that world is probably the more likely one. 
It's going to be a little messy. It's going to look different in every country, but it probably looks like what happened in Australia. Democratic country passes a democratic law that says you broadly have to enter into agreements for with publishers, and they broadly do so. And does that solve the problem with journalism? Absolutely not. Does it provide some funding like it did in $200 million in Australia, goes to the journalism sector? Does that make a difference right now when this industry is under a huge amount of stress? Absolutely. So that's probably the reality I see, is reluctant acquiescence broadly to the terms of these pieces of regulation that are going to look a little bit different in each country, but are not, but are probably going to be applied to a cumulative countries with a billion people. And I mean, <laughs> this is not a, an idiosyncratic Canadian debate. This is a global conversation about how we protect funding and resources to our, our journalism sector. Well, there's just been a, there's a ton of insight in that answer is there's been a ton of insight throughout this conversation. I want to thank you for helping us work through these issues and give us a window into that future. Uh, Taylor Owen, the Beaverbrook Chair in Media Ethics and Communications at McGill University. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. My pleasure. I really enjoyed that. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.